When the white man first came here from over the sea, he looked and he said, "This is God's own country." He was mighty well pleased with this land that he'd found, and he said, "I will make here my own piece of ground." Now many's the battles he still had to fight, and many's the family who died in the night. 'Cause many's the black men who lived all around, and all of them wanting their own piece of ground. Welcome to Circle Around, where we hope to see, analyze, reflect, and respond better to our context by asking meaningful questions that lead to better questions. In this season's final episode, I interviewed my friend Caroline Powell, and we continue to look at the idea of place, space, and belonging as she shares her own journey. Hey Caroline. Hi, nice to see you. <laughs> Hello, that's my so, responsible distance apart from you. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> oh, my friend, thank you so much. I've been dying, firstly, to spend time with you, but also to to talk to you about this stuff. Firstly, because of, um, of who you are to me and the journey that um, God, I believe God has used you to um, just catalyze in our own life. Um, I can't wait for you to just tell us some of your studies and all of that because that's that's one of the things for me that uh, really made me lean into this work because you care about it so deeply. Um, so uh, whenever we start the episode, we always just start. Uh, we we begin with meditating on the incarnation and uh, the fact that uh, Jesus uh, was sent to us, was sent to this messy world with a whole lot of inconsistencies with broken systems um, uh, perpetuated and sustained by broken people. Um, And all this was to show love to us and to restore us and to be kind to us, you know, and to bring us into relationship with him, but also to restore relationship with each other and make the systems of this world and and the world a better better environment, right? And and the world itself um, better. And so... For me, whenever I think about the incarnation, it just draws to it draws me to the fact that Jesus didn't just stay aloof, but he came into the mess. And the scripture that has stood out for me in the last while is from Second Corinthians chapter three, uh, from verse twelve, uh, where it talks about how uh, we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because Christ, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their eyes. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. And so a few things for me that stick out, Caroline, is the fact that um, I've always been satisfied, I guess, with the internal private work of what 
God does when this Lord, who is a spirit, comes into my life. He unveils things, right? I see my behavior. I see uh, my prejudices. I see my propensity to to be jealous and to be covetous. All those things in Galatians, you know, that are the the fruits of the flesh. But something else has happened, um, especially through this uh, relationship where I've been discipled to to step into um, another aspect of freedom, which is God unveiling my eyes to see the world and to see my city, where God has unveiled the city for me. Um, where I feel like I could enjoy space and just do and live in a place and not really care about the stories or the people in that place um, or 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 the meaning of where I place myself, okay? And the meaning of of what I I envisage freedom to look like where now I'm invited to a freedom that is not just a private freedom, but to say, hey, Luce, uh, as in, this is God speaking and challenging my heart, like, Luce, I want to unveil what this city looks like so that you can see it the way that I see it. I want to invite you to participate in a freedom that is bigger than just what's happening in your heart. What's happening in your heart is great. What happens in individuals' hearts is great. But if it doesn't translate to participating in the liberation that is not comfortable, it's it's all around us. It's in the it's spaces, it's places, it's people that are displaced from their homes, or um, just this idea of uh, what, you know, people, communities that we are divorced from, or, or we don't place ourselves in, in under-resourced communities, uh, how spatial planning actually speaks right into how we envisage the thriving or the not thriving of other people. And it's been a, it's been a scary journey, right? And so, um, but now God doesn't want me to be veiled from that. He wants me to see it because I, I believe he's inviting us to participate in that aspect of freedom. Um, so I would love it. I mean, just segueing into yeah. your story because I want people to hear from you. I'd love it if you could introduce yourself and then just tell us also what you're passionate about. And then uh, obviously we'll talk a little bit about what that unveiling has meant for you. Sure. Thank you. You're See, I love, wow. I feel like I could listen to you for, no, no, I for hours. I love how you describe it as these these layers of unveiling. I, I, I just love that description of it because I think, I think you've given me new language to just even with that scripture now to how I've often described my own life and history. So to answer your question, I, I was born in 1976 in South Africa. So I always say born in a storm, wow. you know, in such a crucial year in our country's history. And that was the year that I came to earth. So wow. in terms yeah. of, you know, how we are all image bearers of God, that's where that was my entrance into this, this world. It was Cape Town, 1976. Um, I was born into a white family and we are British descent family. So third generation British. So we come with a colonial history and how my ancestors moved to this part of the world with um, all the the open doors for them that was happening during colonialism at the time. And then the story of my life follows from 1976 through the 80s. And then my high school years, I started out high school at a whites only high school. Mm. And and at, um, in 1989 and finished in 1993, I think those are the dates, wow. <laughs> five years. But um, through the Kodesa years, through the, the, yeah, the, the, the you know, you, exa- the full negotiation of freedom and everything being so uncertain and some of the most violent years of apartheid where the, the system was kicking back, fighting against the freedom that was coming, 
And so that was the backdrop to my, my growing up and also my, my growing up as a Christian as well. And then I, I turned 18 and a two months later voted in the first free and fair elections of South Africa in 1994. And so, but I grew up in a bubble, in a whites only bubble. Um, that was slowly changing through my, my high school years, but it was still very much a bubble. I grew up in, in Camps Bay in Cape Town, which is also behind the mountains, so not exposed to a lot of what was happening in the city. Mm. I then chose to study at Stellenbosch University, which was another bubble. And then I, I chose to go and live in, in the UK after studying. And so I was away from South Africa after um, those first few years of, of the, 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 the new South Africa. So I left with a sense of the rainbow, still very much on my heart, um, still very much a part of my identity, excited to be a South African, no longer ashamed, all of those things, but then lived in another country, back in that space of, of really not interrogating what it meant to be British and South African. Um, another bubble, and then returned from, from that time to realize I was coming back to a country that I had never really lived in with my history, with my body, with my faith. And I had to work out all of those things. And so those, those different bubbles, as I came back into that, as a, as a person in my late 20s, I had to then choose this multi-layered unveiling or not. And so to go into that unveiling as a faithful part of my, my faith journey is what brought me to some of the stuff that we talk about now. Um, and that's been a 20-year journey. Of, of unveiling and it is endless yeah yeah well yeah I guess it's coming up for 20 years now yeah. from when I came back from those quite separated spaces there was always consciousness growing in me because I was always interested in the world but never quite as much as as returning to South Africa and realizing that this was home but it also I couldn't really genuinely call it home if I wasn't going to allow Mm. this unveiling and this relearning um, to happen. But I think we'll talk about more of that yeah. in a moment. But yeah, that's, that's mine. Yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. that's, I love what you say about, um, you know, these different, these different aspects of who you are, making it uh, hard for you to really call South Africa home because you can't really call home a place that you've never really chose chosen to live in right and I think on that I just want to jump into that um into that question about how you how how has it been I mean as a white woman living in South Africa you could actually just continue in that trajectory you know um and also you said it was a 20-year journey of unveiling right um a lot of the things that we've heard about let's say for instance uh in June it was the big uh that BLM, uh, sorry, let me say it, rather the incident of like it was Ahmad Arbery, it was Breonna Taylor, it was George, um, George Floyd, um, and and there was a global uproar about it, right? And I think it made a whole lot of people shift in a big way, um, and people are asking a lot of questions. Um, a lot of white people, even in South Africa, are <laughs> trying to, uh, you know, have. Have some who have not been on the allyship journey of trying to understand the fuller question of the of the history and the legacies that are still here. You know, some some people actually began their journeys, right? And they've been remarkable conversations. But then um, I've noticed that, like for instance, with this story with Brackenfall, that in 2020, that there's a high school that w that was planning or had planned a whites-only matric ball, 
in 2020, right? I think it really broke my heart. I don't know whether it's some kind of form of, <laughs> of racial trauma, PTSD in me, but I just shut down. And, and, but at the same time, I felt the urging from the spirit that I, sh I should just still watch because there's something very telling there, um, Caroline, to say that these things are not things that are happening in the past. They are, they're silently brewing and they're quietly continuing. And I want to know now, what has your journey been in terms of that um, decision to continually um, practice spiritual awareness as part of your faith journey? Because that that has to be that has to be quite phenomenal yeah so i think I, I will acknowledge it was a decision it was a decision that came out of a sense of wanting home to be real i suppose okay. that you you touched on that of being like i want this to really be my home not to be a visitor in my home and the only way i can do that is if i move my body so if i if i break out of the bubbles um and so i did i did make a few quite deeply intentional decisions about where I went to church, um, I changed, I shifted in my career, um, and I changed where I was living in the city and who I was living with. And that did happen over a fairly short period of time. But it, it, they were decisions that, that, that they would give, they, they um, presented themselves to me because the journey that came from before was this decision to not want to stay as isolated as I was, both in my physical presence in the city as well as in my my knowledge of 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 what it means to be in the world as a person of faith in South Africa it, over the in the time that I was living in so you speak about about these 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 um, incidents of racial injustice that happen but they are they are the, the things that are on the surface they are the, the things that often become the symptom they're, they're the symptom bearers of what's happening in, in a thing and so it's 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 living with this knowledge that that the the systems and the and the the environment that's causing racial injustice, the, our history to be very present with us all the time. So actually, not being able to call apartheid history anymore, not being able to call colonialism history, because we have to admit and acknowledge that we live in well, no, that we live in a current state of of of, of colonialized yeah. apartheid because of how our cities are. We no one can deny it. We live with this. This, this pain and this dissonance of it. And, and so we either follow that pain and go into it and try and understand it and see our place in it as part of our faith lives, as part and parcel of who we are as people of faith in the city, or we go, no, we can't, it's too hard. And then we continue to live in the bubble and, um, and with, growing, with growing discomfort and often as white South Africans with guilt or defensiveness when somebody suggests we live differently, we come back with a bunch of questions as to, well, how can I, you know, you, we, and so, yeah, so for me that those, the decisions to allow, allow your life to shift and to move, I think they have to, they have to happen physically and geographically and with where we live our lives with our our bodies and our relationships, as well as just reading the right books and um, and hoping to to get some some more knowledge about yeah. the system. Yeah. And I think you are spot on in that. Like for many for many of us, this is not it's not a topic of curiosity. It's not a 
you know, it's not a new hobby, but um, healing from racial trauma is a, is a daily thing that one has to bring to Jesus. And I think um, it's, it's important also to realize that what, what um, I called it in another episode, the idea of self-idolatry, which is the, the root of this thing, that like when, when, one, when one group or community um, self-idolizes, it sets this whole cycle into motion where other people, they, they cause for their lives to flow in the direction of the person who has decided that they are now going to be the image of God, the image bearer of God more than others, and so on and so on. And then in a way to reclaim that power, we either succumb to the words that are used um, or, or we become the very thing that, that caused this whole thing. And, um, and, and there's a sense of wanting to... Um, of, of wanting to to kill, to destroy, or take away what's hurt you. And I think um, that's one of the things I know I'm recognizing in terms of just this healing of, of wanting to heal from racial trauma is that I want to, I, I, I don't want to get articulate at, um, at getting rid of the person who wants to get rid of me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting across the table. And actually speaking of that, Caroline, I thought to myself, I mean, we had an interesting back and forth about... Uh, as a white woman, should you be the one, you know, speaking on behalf of, you know, should you be the one, should I, should I be speaking to you um, and all of that? And I did want to just affirm again that the reason it's important for me to hear your journey as a white person is because I think a lot of times, maybe if there's a person, uh, you know, who's English or Afrikaans listening to this podcast, a lot of times people don't know how to begin that journey of saying, God, yes, please unveil the city to me because it's going to be uncomfortable, right? Yeah. There is a discomfort because uh, it's like that, that warning on the, on the alcohol bottle, right? <laughs> Saying enjoy responsibly, <laughs> whether it's alcohol or tobacco. And, and normally it, was with, it's, it is with things that, that bring some kind of pleasure or whatever. So whether it's, it's alcohol or tobacco. And um, on this one side, one could say, listen, you shouldn't even be looking at alcohol, right? It's sinful for Christians to even be drinking alcohol to begin with, right? And then on the other side, you could say, you know what? You just live your best life, right? Don't even. But I feel like um, if, if I use that as an analogy of being willing to, to see the city, but there's something about deciding, no, 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 no. I don't want to overly avoid. Um, let's say, for instance, spaces like, you know, that are... Um, that are linked to like white affluence, you know, places that, you know, where in historically only white people have lived in. There are some that are like, you know, we shouldn't even be participating or living in those spaces. Um, uh, so there's this extreme that says, well, places that have that history, uh, we should avoid, don't touch, don't go there, right? Or on this one where we say, you know what, it actually doesn't matter. You just live your best life. It doesn't matter where you live. You can't live your life being burdened by history and all of that. You just live your best life. And I feel like there's, this, there's, there's, an, there's an in-between of, of, of enjoying a city responsibly. On this side, we can say, you know what, you can't enjoy a city that has a an unjust history. You can't. You shouldn't even be there and all of that. You can't see the beauty. You can't um, participate in, in, the, in a place that's heavy laden with that um, horrific memory. But on this side, there's a sense of like, you know what, Live your life as a visitor, guys. We're here. God is going to come fetch us. We're going to go to the suite by and by. <laughs> or rather, whether or, or on the, 
on a more on a on a less spiritual uh, with the with the less of an eschatological view people can be like you know what we only live once just enjoy just enjoy what you can and you just keep it moving again how do i enjoy a city responsibly i want to i want to pull back on a word that you used actually which is curiosity so so for example i think as as a white south african with the history that i have um it would be it could be a very violent thing to just say i'm just going to be curious about our history when it's somebody's lived reality of violence still um but i think that we i think that we have a faith that is based in in curiosity i think that I think that there's mysteries to to our faith. There's mysteries to to God and to the Word of God, where we are, we are, and and as human beings, we're created to be inherently curious. So I think that I think we do need to nurture. I think that 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 South Africans with with um, histories of, of of violence and and who come from an inherited space of 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 un, unjust privilege need to be curious about the spaces that they occupy and that they move through. But I think it needs to be a curiosity with a courage. Because with a courage, because if it's if your curiosity as to why things are the way they are leads you into realizing that they are the way they are because of violence and injustice, both past and present, then the courage needs to be to acknowledge that and then to ask God where in my story is that being echoed or, or where, where am I part of that so that I can be in this space in a different way. And so I suppose that's the, the, the be responsible in your enjoyment of things. Um, so an example would be, um, I remember going to, as I kind of started this, this, this spatial journey of, of trying to live differently and move through the city in a, in a more curious way, I went to, to visit a friend in a place I'd never been before, in, in, in a block of flats in Seapoint. And as I got to, the, to her, her, her apartment, and we were having a drink on the balcony, I looked out and there was a big piece of open land. And I could see from the land, and I mean, I've lived on the Atlantic seaboard my whole life, I'd never, I never knew that open land was there. And I could see from the way the land was, was empty, was it, it hadn't just been, it wasn't like a block of flats was about to be built or something. It was land that had been empty for a very, very long time. And nobody, none of us knew why. But I immediately thought, this has, this has got a story that comes back to, to, to the Group Areas Act. And when I got home, I asked my family, and I did some reading, and I discovered that there was a whole community of people that lived in Seapoint that were removed and their homes were bulldozed just like District 6. But because District 6 is in the middle of the city, it's this massive scar on the city, it's this memorialized space, because there's still the, you know, the, the claimants on the land, the processes that are happening there, they're very public, they're everybody, you can read about them there, there there's, a, there's a museum, there's memorialization, memorialization of District 6. But there isn't memorialization of that patch of land in Seapoint, or the entire southern suburbs, or Goodwood or Milnerton or Simonstown. You can go into those spaces now. Exactly. You can go into all those spaces now and see life. But it's life that, that is only 40 years or 50 years old since the Group Areas Act, you know, changed it radically. And so I often, so the research I'm doing is with churches, interviewing churches in some of those suburbs, asking what their knowledge of their spatial history in those areas are. And the stories that come out are either of churches where people are attending, where they have almost like a spatial amnesia, like a church, churches with amnesia, where the people who go to the church 
have lived there for 10 years or five years or 40 years, but they, there's no memory of what that church was in that suburb before people were forcibly removed from the area. And then you have other churches right in the middle of suburbs that now are predominantly a high-end economic um, neighborhoods, predominantly white still, and yet on a Sunday, you see groups of people traveling in from other parts of the city, and those churches are being attended almost predominantly by people of color. And there were people who were moved from the areas back in the 60s and who still worship there because they come back to those spaces as spaces of memorial and of, of home. If, you do, if you're not curious about why that's happening, if you live opposite that church or around and you see that happening, but you're not curious as to why, then you will never find out about the history of your suburb or the history of faith in your suburb. But if you go there as a curious scientist almost, without courage to follow those stories into your own story, then you are, then you are just reenacting the violence. You're going to a, a museum and you go, oh, that's interesting, um, but you have no intention to live any differently as a result of learning it. So I think the two have to, I think that curiosity is good and I think it's, it's part of our, our faith. I think we need to live in those ways, but especially as those who are living still very comfortably with the inherited wealth that we have, in that we've got to do it with a courage that what we discover yeah. will can will actually lead us into a different way of being a more faithful response. I think I think for me the the word that you kept on using uh, a year ago for me was responding faithfully, mm. responding faithfully. Because I guess we're not just called um, yes. I think there's something so beautiful and profound and just life giving with the horizontal. Um, connection to Jesus in the sense that we really are being transformed into listen clearly and we and we're alive so that we can be actors in this life right and we can be present actors and intentional actors in this life to see the systems that undermine people's um, image bearing and to also um, live a different life and the words that you kept using was how do we respond faithfully to God by responding faithfully to one another took us on this mobile classroom. I will never forget that. It felt like it felt like like something had just been ripped off of my face. But I realized that was still the most gentle thing that God could have ever done for me. With uh I mean right opposite Kirstenbosch, right? You took us to where uh Protea village was and you told us about how there's been that battle for reclaiming that land. Could you please just go back to that story a little bit for me? Um and then because I, because I, I, I wanna, I mean, I, I just, I just wanna just go back to the idea that like, being spatially uh, aware, uh, being aware of the of people's stories, it helps us to live a more honest faith, isn't it? But, but it feels like you walk with a limp almost, you know, and you, 
something wounds you. Something wounds me because I, I'm aware of my participation in this blind engagement mm. of space, right? And um, but it, it just creates such an, an honesty and a humility and, and, and a brokenness. Um, yeah, can you just go back to that to that time that we had? Yeah, I mean, again, that's just another part of our city that is so often just accepted. We have Kirstenbosch Gardens, they're private. I love to go there. So many of my family's memories of doing, you know, special gatherings together are in this private garden that you pay to go into and you're surrounded by, you know, absolutely... Um, but, uh, but uh, I mean, incomparable beauty right there in the, 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 the shadow of the mountain. Um, and the way the story and the history of Kirstenbosch is told is also quite curated. And, and, and it's, not, it's not told along the lines of how that, that land got to be claimed, how Bishop's Court came to be, Bishop's Court. I remember often when I would drive towards Kirstenbosch, there's a little um, corner store mm. in, the, in the middle of this it seems very unlikely space. It's a yes. wooded area yeah. and then a, a very high-end affluent suburb. And then there's your typical corner store yeah. that, that, that has been in, in most neighborhoods around, around Cape Town, you know, since, you know, for the last hundred years. And I always thought to myself how, how out of place it seemed. Yeah. But then, you know, would, would continue driving and go to Kirstenbosch and enjoy a day there. And then discovering that Kirstenbosch was, and, and Bishop's Court in that area was a... a a, a large community of people called Protea Village that were forcibly removed and 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 that was bulldozed in in the in, in the 1960s and that it has been an ongoing land claim that's been happening mm. since since um, freedom uh, dem democratic freedom came to South yeah. Africa. You know, it's that going of that I was curious about something that stood out as different in the area, um, and then over time I discovered the story, and then of course have discovered. The story of the of how the land claim went, how the neighbourhood responded to that, the 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 conflict that happened over the land, um, everything from the position of the, the the little Anglican church that's right there in the heart of it, and how that church positions itself as a church that is in solidarity with the land claimants, and so following the story of that church, um, that has both people who removed from the area and people who live in Bishop's Court now, yeah, who who worship together, but who have said we want to be a church in solidarity with the land claim, as well as. Um, the relationship with the ratepayers association in the area, with property developers, with people who were opposing the return of the land to the original owners. Um, that's a story that then when you discover all of that, um, how you then get to, as you've said, enjoy responsibly the beauty of the area, how you then use your own um, relatively ease of, of access to the place because you have money, you can go to the gardens, I can go to the gardens, I'm um, I can walk in the area without being suspected yeah. uh, in the way that I can, I, there are people, yeah, there's just so much that happens in that space that I have easy access to yeah. how then do I enjoy that with people who have not been able to, to enjoy it before, as well as be a person and a citizen and a ratepayer who support the change of environments around us. And so we, you know, to be, so for example, that area that is, that is now a beautiful wooded area is going to get developed. Mm -hmm. And so how do the people in the area support the development of that, that is going to require somewhat of a, a degreening of the area, mm -hmm. but 
the trees grew in the place of people's homes. Sure. And so how do you, what does environmental justice look like alongside land yes. justice and yeah. spatial justice? And yeah. so for me, it's about, I think, allowing the story to be multi-layered, but like, nuance, yeah, yeah, exactly, in all different levels. And that's, so that's Kirstenbosch, right? And that's what's happening there. And that's an area I live close by. But if you remember the, the, the mobile classroom that we do, where we take people on these faith journeys through the city in one day, mm -hmm. where we look at all these different stories of the city and yeah. spatial um, histories and presence, um, we started that whole journey at, again, District 6, which, yeah. which we, we mentioned earlier in our conversation as a somewhat of a, a memorialized space yes. in the city. It's one that is still, people are watching and waiting. It's an open an open chasm, an open sky it's in the a, city. It's, it's like an open wound. An open wound. You can go there, you can stand there, you can go to the museum. The churches and the mosques that were originally there are still there. And so the, the, it's like the ground cries out, you know, showing there's no life here yet. There, were, there was life, there was community, there was neighborhood. It was destroyed and, and, and it's waiting. Um, and, and so that's a memorialized space in the city. For me, Kirstenbosch hadn't been except for that one little corner store. Yeah. Um, for me, Claremont and Harfield Village, and as I've said, all those other suburbs that I mentioned, are not, they're not memorial spaces. Yeah. And so when we go back and we start, start our journey at District 6, what does that mean for us? Yeah. Um, are we always just waiting for somebody to name it as a, a memorial and hold on to that history and tell it to us? Or are we willing to, to live in in the other parts of the city with that curiosity that I yeah, spoke about before absolutely. to uncover what's happening so that we can embrace a better future. Yeah. So that we can embrace what it's gonna look like for the land claimants to build their community there again yes. and not oppose it because a few trees are gonna get cut down or, or you know something like that. How to live consciously in that story yes. as a person who wants to live and have my children living into the future in a yeah. liberated and a free way. Yeah. And Caroline, I remember that when we went um, with, with the class, I think just before my friend and I, we decided to meet, um, no, actually we were, we were taking a walk in, um, in Zonoblom, just opposite CPUT, and then there was this wall right in that big, massive parking lot across from the campus. Then there was a wall where um, I believe there had been a memorial a few, a few days before that, where different families that had been forcibly removed from District 6 went there and wrote their stories. Like, there were, like, tons of papers on the wall where Mr. Ebrens, uh, this Ebrens family, uh, family of five, we lived in such and such a street. Um, we were here, and uh, this is Mrs. So-and-so. I, my, I, my family and I were moved to such and such a place. We were here. And um, it was so it was so jarring for me, but at the, it was it was both... Uh, an important homecoming moment for me because I felt like now I have, a, I've seen this, I'm seeing the city because you're seeing the stories all plastered on this memorial memorial wall right now. And I believe the District 6 Museum um, had been part of creating that, that's, that time of remembrance for the community that had been there. And um, it was a very important moment for, for, for Lisa and I to stand there. And as a Kosa woman, I am, I'm also a visitor to that story, right? And I'm reading another community, the Colored, Colored, uh, Cape Colored community, that's their, that's their, that's their, that's their, that there's a story there, right, that I lean into. 
And obviously, when you look on the landscape, like you said, it's an urban fracture. We even walked on the land. I remember with my friends, we stood on a part where we, it looked like it had been the, farm, like the base of a house. And that was quite a hectic thing. And then recently, I went to visit there, and um, the wall was empty. Everything was erased. And I wept. I, I called my friend, I called Lisa, and I said, Lisa, they've taken the stories away. They've taken the story, and I, and I didn't know what to do. I was so devastated by that. And um, I, because I, I think for me, it comes down to this question of what's at stake, you know, when we, when we, um, when we don't lean into these stories of these places. We're like, what's at stake? I mean, I remember you even told us, guys, when you hear that there are spatial planning things in your neighborhood, you have to go, right? Because um, my, my final question to you is, how now do we live? But go back, I think. But I think, well, so it's interesting because that memorial was removed and, and, and you, you experienced that and you, you were sad over that. But if you now find, try and find out why, um, because cities are changing all the time and changing cities and changing landscapes are not inherently bad. Um, throughout time, they've changed and, and, and new things have happened and I think we need to embrace new things often. Um, so if you discover why those were removed, you may discover that there's a new thing being planned by those very people. You don't know. Or it could have been removed violently. Um, if, that, if that corner store gets taken down in Kirstenbosch, do I then no longer have something to remind me of or, or to, to spark my imagination about what was before? Or, um, for example, I mean, if we think about Weinberg, um, there were forced removals in Weinberg, but now Weinberg is what's called an arrival city. There's so many people who travel from other countries to come and live in Cape Town, and it's a space where people land and find place in the city to live. So they don't have a historical claim to the area. But if Weinberg changes in 20 years' time and pushes people who, who find Weinberg as a place to land and, and start making home in the city, if that gets gentrified and, and those people are moved out, this recent history of Weinberg gets erased. So, so these things are moving the whole time. And so like, it keeps moving and it's not inherently bad, except if something is, is erased. So then, so then go and if something was there, finding out why it's no longer there um, is part of that, that curious and courageous journey, I would say. Um, or, you know, in Woodstock where we are meeting now, I remember parking in a parking lot and getting out of my car to go to a you know, a music uh, event or something. And I, as I stood on the ground, there were mosaic tiles. And I realized I was standing in somebody's home, what would have been somebody's home. And, 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 but yet now, that parking lot doesn't exist anymore. It's been built on. So now that reminder has been built over. So what then become my new reminders and my new invitations as to what the history of the space is, but what the... What, what, is, what is happening now? Who, who's, who is making it home now and who can't make it home now? Or who is, like, what, what is happening with the person living on the street there? What stories are they able to tell? What are the new people arriving in the space and what are their claims to it? There, there are many, many different ways. I mean, people in heritage call it intangible heritage, where it's no longer the physical building or the space, but it's the stories that are able to be told by the people in the space and what value they, they put on that. Um, so, yeah, again, um, and that for me, if I can use that to kind of bridge into something that I'm very, very passionate about, is how we then read scripture. 
Is that, can, can I do, because I feel like, I mean, I don't know if you had one of those Bibles I had growing up where there were all those maps in the Bible. Yes. And I used to be fascinated by those, but they were 2D maps. They were a map of Palestine in the time of Jesus. They were a map of the ocean where Paul traveled and all of those things. And I was fascinated by them, but they were flat maps. And I think, so you speak about the vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with the world. I feel like we, need, we have quite a horizontal relationship with maps where we just see space and place and we take it for granted and we move around it, but we don't have this layered horizontal analysis of what's happening in the map from a socio-spatial and, and, and almost like geopolitical point of view, whatever. So we, so we might look at a map of, of Galilee and Jerusalem and Judea and the, the River Jordan and Samaria, and we may go, okay, well, Jesus moved around these places. But if we don't have that layered political map of what each one of those places meant and how it came to be yeah. in the time of Jesus, we're always just going to be going, oh, well, he was in, he was in Galilee and then he was in Jerusalem. Yeah. And it's going to be neutral, whereas it definitely wasn't neutral. Every time they said Jesus of Nazareth, they wow. were saying, I mean, I, I sometimes encourage, we, we encourage people in Cape Town to do this contextually. And some people said to me, well, in, in Cape Town, Nazareth would be Blickiesdorf. It would be oh. where people from Woodstock, so in their story, they were saying where people from Woodstock were moved when they could no longer live in the area. They were, the gentrification was happening in this area. Bromwell, or, so Bromwell Street in Woodstock, yeah. for example, and then Blickiesdorf and Volvarithia is created as a space where people are moved to and they are under-resourced, so, and, uh, well, they're, they're, they're places where there is, there is nothing. There's they're nothing. camped yeah. places where people are, are, are put far, far, far away from the, cent from, from, yeah, the center of power where yeah. decisions are made, as well as where their life was. Yeah. Had that happened in, 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 the, in the geography of Jesus' time, who was living in Jerusalem and why? Who was living close to Jerusalem and why? And who was living in Nazareth yeah. and why? And so when Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth, well, who calls him Jesus of, of Nazareth? And why are they calling him that? Mm. Um, and then when, I mean, if you just take, for example, the whole book of Luke, and you take a highlighter and you highlight every geographical place throughout the book of Luke, there are named towns and there are unnamed towns. There are villages and cities. There are, you know, there are buildings that are temples and there are buildings that are synagogues and there are buildings that are houses. You can just, you can just learn so much more about what was happening in Jesus' time, and then you can understand perhaps why he's acting in a certain way in one place and a certain way in another place. And then perhaps if you're curious with courage, you can, you can follow those stories into what that was meaning for him and for the various different groups of people at any different time in the, in the script reading. So for me, to do that with, with my Bible and then to do that with my city. So if I were to sit with, a map of, of, of Palestine in the time of Jesus, a map of Cape Town during apartheid and apartheid spatial planning, a map of Cape Town now and who lives where and why, and then the, the text, and I read Jesus in the boat with the disciples and they cross the water and they go to Gennesaret and they get out the boat. And then I read up what's happening in, what, in, in Gennesaret and they meet the, the, the man who, who, they, who is named as possessed, living in the graves. And then I read up a little bit of history and I discover the entire region of Gennesaret was 
had been decimated by the Roman army, mm. had been a absolutely, had had de like decades of, of violent mm. occupation, um, you know, murders and, and rapes happening in the area. And so a graveyard in Gennesaret meant something. And this man was living in this graveyard. And then when he gets asked, uh, what is your name? He says, Legion. And Legion is the Roman Legion, which is the Roman armies. And so he's literally saying, I am demonized. I'm possessed by an army. But it's not just a neutral army of, of spirits that like, you could start to explore that there was huge amount of, 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 of empire violence that had happened in that place that this man is now living with. You speak about the, the post-traumatic. So no one's denying, you know, a spiritual, spiritual manifestation, manifestation of things yeah. in a person and, 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 the, the yeah, and the ability of Christ to, yeah. to, to the miracle of, mm. of, of, of setting someone free from that. Mm. You don't deny that at all, but you have a much deeper curiosity about it if you read it with that spatial reading and that that yeah of the bible and then if you can again are going on about this but have the courage to then say well what does that mean for us now here how are we how are we living with yeah the the the, the possession of generations of of violence and what is christ you coming back to your opening introduction about about freedom it is for freedom that we are set free or for you know then freedom becomes way more than just one person being set free from, from a life of sin. You, you then can start to explore what individual, family, family-sized, community-sized, and then city-wide and, 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 and country-wide liberation and freedom looks like in Christ. Absolutely. And um, I'm going to, oh, what a beautiful, I mean, thank you so much. That was so beautiful, and I love that you, um, you brought in you brought it back to actually how it starts with how we read the text and how we read the city, right? Because that's what we want to do. We want to be faithful readers um, of the text and our context in order to respond to how now do we live? How now do we respond here? Um, Caroline, I'm just so thankful that you could sit and, um, and break this down for us. Uh, we are right now in Woodstock where there's a bustle and there's a hustle. I love Woodstock because it feels like there's something old with something new. And again, there's a story of gentrification and communities that are there. And that's why I wanted to talk to you here uh, because this for me also is a constant ongoing, ongoing rather journey of unveiling and wanting to respond faithfully to Jesus. And um, I'm just so thankful. And I just wanted to maybe land the conversation here to say uh, perhaps you could, you could just also leave us with the sense of um, how we participate in that collective mm. healing. I love the fact that um, God doesn't just come to heal us as, as individuals, but you're talking about a sense of collective healing, that God is not wanting to privately make us okay, but he wants to love on us and heal us together and help us to be administrators of this beautiful covenant of healing, right? Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many, there's so many layers. I think often we do skip straight into, like, we've got to do something. Um, and, and action always has to be part of this, this cycle of we, we live, we see, we name, we analyze, we theologize, we dream about a different world, and then we can't just stop there. We've got to act into, into that, that new way. But sometimes acting is is going into the story and realizing almost like like the the, the medical um, 
world will say first do no harm. So realizing how we do harm, um, how we live in us in our neighborhoods and who we other in our neighborhoods. So what does it mean to look look at those who we um, perceive as being unsafe in our neighborhood or or threatening in our neighborhoods? What does it look like to not call the cops on a person who is homeless um, because you know that that they will have their belongings removed from them and they will they will go they you know so what does it look like to respond to the homeless person in my street in a first do no harm way what does it mean to not despise the person who goes through my 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 refuse as being this person who's making mess but actually being like I'm going to make sure there's no glass broken in my dustbin. There's no, there's, 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 if there's clothing that I want to throw away, it's not actually next to unmentionable but, but, things. And, and then, but actually to package it. So, that, so that, that's, I mean, that's not justice. That's first doing no harm. So, or whether it means to how do I, I relate to the person who, who is not a South African citizen and is, is attempting to, to start a life here. Like, like, what does it look like to first do no harm but there can be roots of justice based in that. And then for me, it's how do, how do I live compassionately? Like, how do I follow in the footsteps of Jesus? Understanding that Jesus was not neutral, that Jesus was not geographically neutral, that Jesus always knew where he was, why he was there, and what was going on because of where they were. Yeah. Um, and so taking that, that newly found knowledge that I might have about my body in a space and then trying to be wise like Jesus is. And so then realizing that we can't, we can't um, I think often in, in justice um, thinking, we despise mercy and charity. But no, we have to be merciful and we have to be yeah. charitable. Because we have to, because, because there's, so then it's working about how, like what does generosity look like? And then in our generosity with one another, um, understanding what spaces we occupy in our world can we hopefully have the the seeds of relationship that could bring about interdependence and not just damaging top-down giving and 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 then you follow the story of mercy into the injustice that has caused the mercy the 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 the, the need for the for the charity in the first place and so then you start to 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 understand the, the the systems the decisions and so then it's about i would say Always think in your life, where, where do you have influence and who's making the decisions about the places where you have influence? So do you need to get into, find out who's running your church and who's making decisions about how your church buildings are used? Um, and, and if the people who are making the decisions about how the church buildings are used haven't engaged with a theology of space and place, then how could you help them do that? Or could you join the team that looks after the buildings and and help um, infuse some of the thinking around how much we spend to fix the garden or the roof? I'm talking about about a a well-resourced church building um, or whether we start this building project or not or how much money we raise to get this new property or whatever. Do you do you shy away from being in those spaces because that's not your thing, or do you start to get passionate about what it could look like to have sacred church spaces that are publicly available to, to for the shalom of the city? Um, and if you're excited about that, then maybe you need to get involved in a place where decisions are made, because the people who up to this point have been making the decisions 
haven't had a spatial imagination, haven't had a theological imagination for that, and, and are maybe not curious or courageous, or, or would be if you just came in and if brought in, in and, 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 brought, and asked solution. some curious questions yeah, about it, like, oh, why do we, why are we okay with our building only being used on a Wednesday night and a Sunday morning? Mm -hmm. um, you know, or, you know, what is, what, what witness do we want to be in this neighborhood? Could you be asking your church and your family and the people that you're friends with, do we really believe in our neighborhood or do we, or do we believe in our house? And, and or our, our church house. So do are we okay to travel across the city to go to a church that's in somebody else's neighborhood and we're not thinking about how that church, how that church impact is impacts that neighborhood? Or am I okay to just travel to work and back again and just come home and escape into my home? Or do I care about like can we become people who are very interested and excited in our neighborhoods, but then not just our neighborhoods as the bubble, but our neighborhoods and the neighborhoods they're in relationship with because of, of the way people move between those two neighborhoods and what, you know, um, I think during lockdown, we saw a lot of very exciting things yeah, happen with community action network groups yeah, yeah. And, and people who were willing to say, we want to look after our neighbor, but we realize my neighbor in this affluent neighborhood, if we just keep on caring for each other, we're not going to, to find out about how we can care for people across the city and then how we can, yeah. So there, I mean, there's just a lot and, and so there, yeah. There's so many ways we can live, faith, as I said, faithfully. faithfully. Uh, but, a, but I think a big one is, is find out who's making decisions about where you live and sure. see if you can somehow learn more about that and then, and then influence how those decisions yeah. are made. Um, yeah, being, a, being an active citizen. Yeah, I think we actually need to literally like make a list of those things yeah. and make them mm. accessible. Um, Caroline, we have just had like the most incredible conversation. I'm really going to be mulling over these things, yeah. seriously. Um, so we've circled around. I've been well dying to say this because my classy nobody says it. <laughs> so, so we've circled around um, uh, to this and you've just left us with such beautiful, practical steps. Um, I really want to say thank you so much for taking this time to be with us. And also just for your friendship, my friend. Yeah. I've just enjoyed uh, learning from you, especially because you're a white woman um, who's also, who also wants to learn from other people. Um, also your positionality um, and your intentionality also uh, towards uh, black and brown bodies in the city and your movement towards those things you could shy away from. I really want to honor you for that. And thank you so much for allowing me to inconvenience you and get you to no, come sit down with me. Thank you so much, Caroline. Pleasure. Yeah. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much. <laughs>